Well, hi there, cockroaches. My name's Judy DL and I'm a radioactive cockroach. And it's an identity that needs a little bit of an explanation. When we disclose a sexual assault, when we go to the police or confide in a friend, when we make a formal complaint, we feel a bit cockroachy. We feel like we might have to scuttle back under the fridge. We feel a bit radioactive. We feel like people might recoil from us. With, because we can cause them some kind of unseen harm. We might be radioactive cockroaches, but here we're all radioactive cockroaches and we're here to join you with good humour to keep you entertained. We like to have a little bit of a shout out this week to all the different kinds of cockroaches, in particular those women who have felt completely cockroachy and completely radioactive when it emerges that their partner has been viewing, collecting and participating in the distribution of paedophilic material. We know you're there. We know that you have a particular kind of cockroachiness. And we want to welcome you into our little community here. We're good-humoured. We like a joke. We know that just because of all the misery and the muck, we don't lose our sense of humour. We're here to keep you company and we're going to be a little bit informative as well. And now it's time to welcome Bess. Hi, Bess. Hello. Yeah, you're you're a bit deeper. Than you you. Yeah, you may notice some husky tones to my voice. Yeah, and... I believe you have had a COVID test. I've had a COVID test. I've socially distanced appropriately. I got a text saying I do not have the dreaded COVID. but And we are still socially distancing because not all of us want the croaky cold. No. So, listeners, that's why I may sound a little more husky, a little more... What's that A we were talking about last ASMR. episode? A little bit more ASMR. I mean, if... if unusual. I, if I did the whole podcast in a whisper... You wouldn't notice my croaky voice. But actually, I'm just speaking at perhaps an octave or two lower than usual. Oh, that's okay. We, we, can, we can deal with that. So we've got a good episode coming up. Tell me about it. You don't know? I know some of the things. You know the bits you're in. I know the bits I'm in. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're going to be good. We look forward to welcoming Bess in the final episode of the day, Cockroach Relief, mm-hmm. which is a specifically funny bit. Hopefully. Um, and we've got a really comforting episode today. We're looking forward to meeting Tony Bannister and his Panpipe Orchestra and hearing about his career in meteorology. He's a lovely man. What You'll a combo. Him. I know. So we're up for a comforting chat there. Um, and no one that has ever had a chat with Tony Bannister has ever come away without feeling comforted. So you can join us at the table, cockroaches. And also, cockroaches in the spotlight. We're stepping into the spotlight. The spotlight's when we call things out, when we go processy, when we make disclosures. And we're being informative cockroaches here today. Learning and having fun at Radioactive Cockroach. and having fun at Radioactive Cockroach. His Honour Justice Andrew Tinney of of the Supreme Court of Victoria is going to talk to us about the Witness Assistance Scheme and the benefits that he's seen, not just for witnesses, but for the court processes overall so knuckle down no you don't knuckle down what do you do you buckle down you're not knuckling down you knuckle down and work we want you to buckle down for a really good ride listen relax get comfy great to see you all there at the other chair at the table here 
in the beautiful Macedon Ranges, socially distanced from the croaky bits. <laughs> Cockroaches, we're not here to share stories from the trenches. We're not here to, to tell, tell you triggering things. But it's an honest space and things will come up that may have an impact on you or on someone you love. If that happens, please call 1800RESPECT. There's someone there ready, willing and more than able to have a helpful chat with you or go to our Facebook feed where you'll find a link there that will take you to a whole range of supports. Pull up your favourite chair, pour yourself a cuppa and settle in for a chat. Welcome cockroaches to Cockroach Comforter. So if you're looking for the best comforters around, you've come to the right place. Oh, you sure have. You've come to Radioactive Cockroach, where we just do nice stuff. We don't publicise our regrets. We don't get into arguments. We just have a chat. And we don't even moan on about the COVID spike. I don't have to go out now. I never really wanted to. I'm hanging out at the microphone. You might be staying home, but you're not alone. Our early interviews... Oh dear, have taken on a poignant COVID tone. The comedy festival had to go and we felt it as a body blow, but they come make us go out now. We don't even have to get dressed. I'm poised by the mic in my tracky decks and we're inviting you to be our guest. Okay. Welcome to my dear friend Tony Bannister, who, well, how old were you when I met you, Tony? Oh, golly gosh, that was probably my second year at university. So you're looking at about 18 or 19? Yeah, I thought That's it was a about long that. Time I was ago. about 19 or 20. I think this little segment's going to be about the joys of being a bit of a dad because we were singing in university choirs when yes, we, yeah, we were turning up and very disciplined, learning our four part harmonies and going to the pub. Yes, and singing at the pub. Yes, I remember those days. Uh, we yeah. used to yeah, sing arrangements of Rubber Ducky and things like that in public for fun. Rubber Ducky, you're the one. You make our times lots of fun. Rubber Ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. So I think that puts us soundly in the dag zone. But we went on to careers one way or another. Yes, yes we did. Yes, yeah. what was your degree I did a Bachelor of Science out at Monash University and I majored in mathematics and chemistry and at that stage I was going to be the best maths teacher. Oh. But I realised while I did my debate that I didn't feel that I fitted in correctly into teaching. It wasn't sparking joy, Tony. Yeah, no, that was a tough year actually. Yeah. And I actually worked with um, autistic adults. Yes. Or... About five years. Yep. Then I came to realisation that either I had to go back and do special ed and really own working with autistic people or uh, yeah, what else do I want to do? And I basically spent a year having a look at what I wanted to do and that finally led me to where I've been for 30 years, which is meteorology. 
meteorology. You're a climate scientist? No, I'm actually a weather forecaster. So there is a, there is a difference. There is? So, yeah. So Could you explain that? There's, there's weather and climate. Climate is what you expect in the long term mm-hmm. and weather is what you get so you're, day to day. So you're about what's happening now. Yeah. 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 So when, you, um, when you're looking at what's happening now, do you look at what the climate scientists are doing as part of your prediction? Uh, oh, yeah, yes, in terms of a climate outlook, and that's actually getting better and better. I should say that I have just retired from the Weather Bureau, the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, and basically our, our work is grounded in the climate, and one of the major things in the climate is that we really do now know that it's changing. Yeah. Usually when you're looking at climate, you say, well, this is our average and um, you know, differences from average and you usually look at a 30-year period to get your averages for lots of things, temperature and rainfall and all sorts of things. But the Bureau came to the realisation that, that they couldn't just have a, a statistical model for climate and now they have computer model for climate, which is just an extension in a way of, of the weather model. Yeah. So it can cope with the change in climate, yep. which is what we have now. Yeah. And this has brought you into a fairly robust conversation with, well, I guess the Murdoch Press really, hasn't it? Yeah, in terms of the, the Bureau, it's it's a government organisation, a federal government organisation, and the Bureau has to be very clear that it, talks about uh, the science. Yes. The science and uh, we don't have an imprimatur to talk about uh, the policies of, yes. the, of the government. So we yeah, we live and die by the science and we've had that attacked and all the inquiries, we've had inquiries based on, um, our, on the climate record and we've always come up trumps or the Bureau's always come up trumps because uh, we're very careful, we're a scientific organisation and uh, we live and die by the science. I'm just wondering if on a day-to-day basis, I understand the science and you're committed to the science, but is there a bit of an art to it too? Yeah, the, the way I, I tell people, as, as this is as weather forecasters now, so we're... Not, not climate forecast, scientists, yeah. weather forecasters. Yeah, yeah, what's the weather going to do? Yeah, is it going to rain? Is it going to not? Yeah. Do yeah. I need to yeah, do I take need a brolly? Umbrella, yeah, yeah, all those sort of things. Yeah. It's in the future. There is always, it's a percentage game and you are forecasting into the future. What I tell people is um, uh, we work as storytellers and so we're trying to tell the best story we can and part of that story is explaining when we're very certain about things and other times when come back tomorrow and we'll have a better idea. So I was lucky enough to um, be part of the team that forecasts for the Sydney Olympics and I was on for the opening ceremony. From about seven days out, we'd said that the weather would be fine, would be great for the opening ceremony, but we knew that there was a change that was going to come up the coast of New South Wales and go through um, Sydney at about the time of the uh, opening ceremony, but it was going to be a dry change. And that was the story that we told. However, (laughs) (laughs) as we got close to the opening ceremony, Clouds starting to look a bit darker, and this is the forecasters looking out the window. <laughs> and we, for very short-term forecasting, especially for rainfall, we use the radar. And it suddenly looked like, to us, like there was a lot of drizzle on the radar. <laughs> <laughs> and 
we looked outside again. We actually started ringing forecasters who were driving home from work yep. and saying, are you getting any drizzle? Is there any, anyone getting any drizzle? And I just think, no, it's sort of dark clouds, but there's, yeah, there's no drizzle. And we had uh, a television as well looking at the opening ceremony and yeah, it looked like it was actually okay. Um, you know, but we had thought that, oh, God, you know, it's going to be like um, in Russia where we'll get our heads lopped off because you know, we, we'd forecast something and then it wasn't like that for the um, opening ceremony. And then we actually saw it was when uh, an opera singer was singing, um, there was a bogon moth that landed on her. And then we realised that what we were seeing on radar was lots of bogong moths that um, had suddenly, because it was coming just after a sunset, that they were flying through the air and they looked like drizzle. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. So, yeah, there you go, Bureau of Meteorology. They're telling you stories. They're using the best evidence they can, but the radar can't tell the difference between bogong moths and drizzle. Drizzle. Or yeah. well, they look very similar. They, they look, look very, very similar. Yeah, very yeah. similar. You've got the vicissitudes of normal family life and juggling the balance. And I know that music's always helped give you the balance. I remember when when you were a young bloke, you were in a, a, ja- a band called Jugularity, which was a jug band, a bit like Captain Matchbox Whoopi Band, if you were going to look for something similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, colourful suits, great fun. Yeah, yeah, Jugularity. That was in, for me, that was in the um, 80s. Yeah. And um, they're actually still going. They are. Yeah. Lying, those devil lips that know so well the art of lying. And though I see the danger still, the flame grows higher. I know I must surrender to your kiss of fire. Just like a twat. So like yeah. Rolling Stones. You yeah, know, just you can and go. go and have a good dance along and they're all yeah. great and it's absolutely fabulous. But the thing that I was just hoping you could share with us today... And that's your Andean Panpipe Orchestra. So I play in a, a group called the uh, Zampanistas in Melbourne and we are the premier Bolivian Panpipe marching band in Australia. Premier one. Because we're the only Bolivian <laughs> Panpipe marching band. And that's a group of non-Bolivians, I have to say, um, who have this love of music. It's a pre-Columbian music. It was the music before the Spanish came to Bolivia and to the high country also of Peru and uh, Chile and a bit of Argentina. So look, Tony, yep. Tony this, is, this is the 21st century here and I've got young adult kids in my family and so have you and do they look at you earnestly, mine would, and say, this sounds like cultural appropriation. <laughs> my, my son has, has been known to say death to Zampanistas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, it, it probably is, but again, it is part of the folk process. It actually came from a, a, sp- a spot of love. Two of us independently lived in uh, uh, Perth in the 90s and we played in a similar band, basically, yep. called Kanta Sakuri. And but it's not the premier one. Uh, because it doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and uh, that was actually started by uh, a Belgian. A guy, Alain Theron, and uh, we played in the Festival of Perth in the uh, 1990s. Yeah. And he was able to get uh, a grant from the Festival of Perth to bring over some panpipe players from Bolivia. Okay, so and you have a first degree direct transmission from cultural yeah. 
yeah. integrity vet. Uh, yeah. Tony, do you make a lot of money from this? Uh, no. <laughs> no, it's, that's laughable, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, I, yeah. I think cultural appropriation becomes unethical when it's firstly unacknowledged and secondly when it's profitable and the profits don't go back to the community that owns it. Yeah, yeah. And no, and, and we've actually just been up at a Newstead Folk Festival. Uh, we had a, a performance in a beautiful little church and part of that is we explain the background of the music yep. and where it comes from and the interesting way that it's played. It's it's the music of the, the villages, yep. not of the cities. And it's really interesting because... Um, well, I've played a bit of it, yeah? Tony, and for people brought up in the Western tradition, the thing that's most confusing and most enchanting is you don't get all the notes on yours and you need all the notes to play the tune, so you can't play the tune by yourself. That's right. Um, people will probably um, know that they might have seen an Andean um, band busking somewhere and someone will be playing the panpipes and there'll be two rows and they'll be playing the tune. One person will play the tune. However, the original way it was done was you split the pipes and one set of people are called eras and the other set of people are called arcas and you play the tune between the two sets of people. So I've got in front of me one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pipes, and I'm going to assume they're going to play a scale. Shall I play them? Okay, you have a go, Judy, and see what go. happens. Okay. Oh, now, that's not a scale. Correct. And now I'll do the same on the other set of pipes. Okay. And, and I've got see. ten of them. Yeah. Okay, and I'll do the same thing. Right, now right. we'll put the two together. Who starts? Um, I do. You I'm, start. I'm the Arca and you're the Era. I'm the okay. Era, okay. Right, okay. Arca way and I shall ear. Okay. and the Amara culture, which was there before the Spanish came. And it was very much a, um, a group pro process. You're not individualists here. You no. can't even play a tune by yourself. No, you, you've, yeah. got to, you've got to be together. Back in um, Bolivia, it's just done by the men. Yep. And the women dance around the group. And it's played by men and, and younger boys. And they play it travelling from village to village. Okay. So they will go meet up with another village and they'll play their tune from their village that they do at that time of year. One of the really interesting things is that uh, in the Quechua uh, language, there's no word for music. It's just what you do. It's just what you do. It's just, it's like breathing. Yep. 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 And, and so is the dancing, clearly. Yeah, That's just moving. Yeah. We have both men and women playing. Yep. And we uh, then we um, in Perth we had a link to a a group, or actually an orchestra in La Paz, where they were keeping alive the um, the old tunes, and we're getting back a connection with them, and hopefully we might do something with them in a couple of years. 
we've learnt a new tune um, from a person in La Paz and uh, one of our members went, I've heard that style of music before. And it was basically a beat of two against three at the end of each line in this tune, in this Andean tune. And he looked it up and it was actually a Spanish Renaissance dance. Oh, wow. So and so it had been integrated, it had into, been the integrated. into the traditional culture. Exactly. So yeah. there was always the folk process. Yeah. Yeah, so we, yeah, we play... Um, bowing our, our heads to the style that um, where it's come from. But we've also taken new tunes and put them in the style of the Andean yeah. style. This was recorded, I believe, at the National Folk Festival in Canberra in 2016 as part of a Leonard Cohen cover competition. I think they should have won. Maybe they did. Something that gives you great joy. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's um, and it keeps you in touch with old friends and new friends. It does. Uh, yeah, yeah. Basically, it's a great therapy session. It is, isn't it? And uh, you have this joy in, in making music, uh, but around that are all these rituals that um, pull you together. So um, when we have a practice, we eat chocolate and yeah. we drink um, lemon verbena Oh, tea. beautiful. Yeah. And so that, that's part of our uh, process. I've I've done this two or three times with you, haven't I, Tony? At, at, um, at family folk festivals. Yes. In the Andes, I guess you just know, um, but we have to do it by numbers. In in the Andes, I do it by the folk process, where they the tunes are passed on orally from generation to generation. That's one of the things now is that the young kids um, just want the Western way. Yeah. So this orchestra in La Paz, part of their brief is to record and to note down these ancient tunes yeah i'm sort of the hefe for the group the the chief, chief. and for us in in australia i've sort of notated the tunes mm-hmm. both in numbers but also in normal stave yeah, yeah. system yeah and and what's interesting is different people will learn in different ways some yes. people just follow the numbers some follow the notes and some people listen and want to yeah. learn by ear yeah and all work in the end though you do Gotta it without it off music, by heart. off yeah. by heart, and it's it's a it's a really nice thing. The other thing with this music is it's to be played moving out, walking around. Yeah, that's what we do. That's what we've also did up at Newstead. Um, walked around playing, surprising people. We'd look up ahead and we'd see people off in the distance going, "What is that sound? Well, what's happening?" And then, what's with the ponchos? Yeah, where did they yeah, get those hats? Yeah, where did they get that? Yeah, and. And, um, yeah, we just walk up to them and then pass them and we do some sort of little formation things. Um, you can actually uh, look on the web, um, Google Siku Band, S-I-K-U Band. Once again, I'll link you to this on the Radioactive Cockroach Facebook page. How many years have you been doing this, Tony? I was actually thinking about that this morning. And I think we started in about 2000 or 2001. So we could be up for about a twentieth year. Isn't that fabulous? Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah, really a 
bunch of friends uh, get yep. together every two or three weeks, have a bit of a, a chin wag, have a bit of a play. Sometimes we've got a, a gig or something that we're working towards, quite often not, just having a bit of fun. But one of the things in the next few years is this this little twinkle in the eye that we have that we might, a few of us might go over to La Paz to play with this orchestra. Tony, it's been a delight catching up with you. I wish we could play everyone a beautiful tune. I'm just not good enough and you can't do it by yourself. <laughs> That's right, I need so an era. They're yeah. gonna, you're going to have to tune in to the links on YouTube and find those on the Radioactive Cockroach Facebook page and enjoy the Zampanistas. I know I do. And thank you for all your weather forecasting. Thank you for being uh, our necromancer for all those years and for um, giving us such good service. Thanks for having me, Judy. It's been fun. Cheers. And now it's time to go on topic with cockroaches in the spotlight. We now have the honour of welcoming His Honour, Justice Andrew Tinney of the Supreme Court of Victoria. Justice Tinney has been on the bench now for nearly two years after 23 years at the bar, 12 of those in the Office of the Crown Prosecutor. Today, Justice Tinney is going to talk to us about the Witness Assistance Service. Welcome, Justice Tinney. Tell us about the Witness Assistance Service. A lot of the observations I made were in my time as a Crown Prosecutor. So I, I became a Crown Prosecutor in 2006 after having been a private barrister for years before that and when I started I was because of the work I was doing I was mainly doing murders and other homicides and by that time there was a very well established witness assistance service at the OPP when it first started in Victoria in 1990 you know in the mid to late 90s there were a couple of social workers and it was it was only confined to homicides and really serious sex cases then throughout the years it sort of grew and uh, changed and became a a really well-developed system to try to look after people victims witnesses family members in connection with not only the um, murders and things and the serious sex cases but all all cases now there's a situation of uh, i think 21 social workers uh, and that's just the social workers that's in was so they work with the APP in Lonsdale Street. And my understanding is that every victim uh, of a crime will now be contacted by someone from the Witness Assistance Service. They're now called Victims Witness Assistance Service, but they're always known as was. Give the social workers a chance to determine the needs of the individual victims, and of course, those needs vary a lot. Some of them don't need anything much in the way of support, but others need a huge amount. We know that, that with um, victims of sexual assault and people that have to th- follow through with the process, you know, the main thing they need is someone to hear them and to believe them. But yep. beyond that and what the process can and can't provide in that respect, they need someone to bear witness. And often they don't want that to be someone who's intimately connected to them because they don't want them to be impacted by yep. what can be some pretty yep. tough stuff. So no, that's for sure. Would you say, uh, you know, that, that need to have someone to bear witness, is that something that you've seen to be of value? Oh, I think so. I think, I think even before there were the, the was people in place, it, you know, a lot of that 
role was filled by Victoria Police. And, of course, they've had that important role for, well, a long, long time, longer than I've been in the law. They have taken it very seriously, I think, and they, they, they do their best to try to look after people. And and I think they they do bear witness to the, the stories that they're told. But now it's become, and I should I should say, Judy, that um, I said that um, there was people contact every victim. Um, I'm talking there in, about cases that end up in the higher court, so in the county court and the Supreme Court, or end up heading in that direction. But for other victims for offences that are going to be dealt with in the summary jurisdiction, you know, in the magistrate's court, then Victoria Police would automatically refer them to the Victims Assistance Program or Victims Assistance Service. And so I think there's something in place for, for everyone. It's sort of become such a well-developed thing in the more serious crimes. Um, they needed to bring the, um, the lawyers uh, into the 21st century or the 20th and then the 21st century, I think, because traditionally the lawyers, particularly the barristers, the prosecutors, they didn't want to be involved with witnesses and victims because they thought it might prejudice their impartiality or um, you know the, the role that they have to play as the lawyers, the prosecuting lawyers. The danger of that was that it left the the uh, person that was complaining of the crime feeling as and the, you know the phrase drops keeps cro- cropping up. Yeah, I'm just a witness. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and. Um, but that's, and that's the way I think the legal profession, as you know, is very old fashioned. And that was the way things were done. And when I came into the law and started doing criminal trials uh, back in the 80s, uh, the tradition was that prosecuting barristers did not even speak to witnesses. Uh, now, that varied from person to person. And I must say, it was never the way I did it. But it was considered that if you did, you lay yourself open to attack. More importantly, you lay the witness open to possible attack of being too close to, to you. But that's all completely changed. And I think the, the social workers had a, a huge role to play in that because when they when this whole process was sort of set up, they introduced more and more aspects to it. And one of them was that they started fully involving the solicitors in the OPP and then they started involving whoever the prosecutors were, whether they were Crown prosecutors or private barristers. And they started... Uh, having conferences at a very early stage between victims and family members and the police, the the solicitor, and also the, the prosecutor. So these were called WAS conferences, and it became a very, very important part of the whole process. So I had many cases where you were doing a particular case, let's say a committal hearing in the magistrate's court, and then some weeks before that, or maybe even on the day before that, or even on the morning for that matter, you would actually meet up with the, the witnesses family, other interested people, you'd sit down around a table, you'd talk about the case, you'd talk about what to expect, uh, just so that they could understand how the process would work, in the case of the lawyers, what their role in it was going to be and what the witness's role would be. And I think it gave them a chance to really ask questions so that they could fully understand what what it was really going to be like. And uh, of course, they'd never really understand that until they were in court. And then the social workers, the process would involve them invariably taking witnesses and uh, to court, taking them in there, getting them to have a look around, maybe stand in the witness box in preparation for being there and knowing what it would be like. And sometimes in the lead up to cases, you might have a number of these conferences where you'd speak to the witnesses and the family members. And I think it really brought 
the lawyers, some of them kicking and screaming, but some of them very willingly into a much better uh, way of dealing with things. No, I, I can't see how anyone could object to a bunch of people understanding the justice process and the fact that it was working for essentially the truth um, and supporting them in giving their evidence in such a way as, as the truth became evident. I mean, it's really hard to see how that could be argued with, although I know it was. But Well, I agree. Yeah. The other question I'd really like to ask, do you think that in assisting witnesses and the people that support them, to be comfortable in the environment and, you know, knowledge is power to feel more able to be heard, tell the truth. Do you think that resulted in more cases going forward? Do you think it it resulted in different outcomes? Oh, I think it definitely resulted in more cases going forward. As for different outcomes, I think the outcome would invariably be better for the victim or the witness to at least not be in the dark for, for, for some of the mystery and, and terror to be removed from the whole process. So have a bit more agency in the process. Oh, absolutely. And mm. but, but, you know, I they felt then a part of it. I think they that witnesses need to understand that they, they can only do their part of the job, though. You know, they can still only go into the witness box and tell the truth and do as well as they can. And if they do that, then they, they've done what they can. And then, I mean, I... Frequently, Judy had to, I would say to people all along, look, I'd, especially I'm talking about in a trial situation where you're going to have a jury out, I would quite often, you know, I'd talk to them throughout the case whenever I could. They, often uh, witnesses would come into court and remain in there after their um, evidence had finished or, or family members, in, in, let's say in a murder, would be there throughout. And I would talk to them whenever I could and I would explain to them what was happening there and um, often they, they were accompanied in court, certainly at the critical times, by one of the social workers from WAS. Uh, they had a shoulder to lean on there, but I think they, so they had help coming from a number of directions and then certainly as a lawyer, I suppose I, I just wanted to make sure that I would do what I could to make things as good as possible. So when the jury went out, I would always get the family together and say, all right, well, the evidence is all in. You've done really well. I think we should be very proud of that. We should be very pleased that Victoria Police have done such a great job uh, and I've certainly done as well as I can. Now the rest is up to the jury and you should not feel that whatever that decision is, that that's necessarily a reflection on the value of what you've done. And that's where we leave his honour for this episode. Thank you, Justice Tinney for your experience, perspective and insights and we hope that we'll be returning to more of those insights in future episodes. And now it's time to take a big sigh. It's time for cockroach relief. Lay down the burden of your heart I know you'll never miss it. <laughs> it's too heavy. It's too heavy. Put it down. Here. Here. It's lighter when you let go, isn't it? <laughs> oh, and I'm letting it go, letting it go. I'm letting it go with Bess. Hi, Bess. Hello, Judy DL. And we were going to just bring you in a bit later to be grilled by Stutzo. 
Uh, but you're going to have to be grilled by me because Stutzo has a migraine. Oh, Stutzo. We're Poor thinking Stutso. of you. We are. Um, so she'll recover, though. She's she's resilient. Um, but, you know, we do have another guest today. And our other guest, we're following in a bit of a tradition here. We had the late, great Greg Fleet. Very oh, rarely on time. Yeah, always bloody late. Um, and this time, our guest is the living spirit of a legend. So we're talking late in the other way. We are talking late in the other way. We're talking about the late, extremely fabulous Anna Russell. Now, you have a penchant for clever, witty women who can also sing and play a musical instrument. Yes. And you have enlightened me to... A number of such artists, including Anna Russell. So I've been doing some Googling. Oh, good for you. You probably know more than I do now. Well, if you two make use of Wikipedia, yeah, <laughs> we'll probably be about on par. But so we're talking about a woman who was a singer, performer, comedian. Yeah, hit the hit her heyday in the early fifties. Yeah. So. A touch before my time. <laughs> and just a touch before mine. True, true. Um, internationally famous. I'm understanding that she's got a bit of a connection to Australia. She she loved it here. She did a number of tours here, which is something we will touch on mm. soon when me and Stutzo perform the miracle of coming back at the same time. Um, but, yeah, she, she actually, I believe, formed a, a Sydney journalist. Mm. And biographer. Um, uh, yes, who wrote her biography, and um, she chose to move to Australia in her declining years, and she died just south of Byron Bay and mm. was buried here. So, um, look, she's a soulmate. She was an internationally famous soulmate. From what I've read, she sounds fabulous. Uh, and I'm wondering if you might have a favourite quote that might encapsulate her and her attitude. Well, you know, you could listen YouTube endlessly on her and I encourage you to do so. I've been trawling through my vinyl collection. Mm. Um, but the quote that I found was when you sent me to Wikipedia <laughs> and um, she was asked, because she tried to have an opera career and didn't, because her voice, while beautiful and wonderful, was not just quite good enough for that international headliner career. And she was asked what it took to become a, a successful classical singer. And she said that although a glorious voice was important, it helps to be an independently wealthy, politically motivated, backstabbing bitch. And, oh, yeah, what, what, what can I say? <laughs> she said that in the 50s. It's pretty good advice for the contemporary woman, I would think, as well. Well, I would have thought so. <laughs> Yeah, DL and Stutso. Well, ah, here we are, DL and Stutso at it again. Yes, and at the moment we're actually talking about the fact that uh, Judy DL is a bit of a fangirl. I'm a fangirl, yes, of anyone that can sing and play the piano at the same time and be funny. And the one person we were talking about is Anna Russell. Bit of a nerd about Anna Russell, and you know, deer in the headlights here, opposite me, 
also a bit of an Anna Russell fangirl. I have to admit, I am. She's not tremendously well-known these days. She's still well, really quite well-known among opera buffs. Ah, and mm. that might be, yes. I won't translate it because it doesn't mean a thing. Anna Russell is famous for her analysis of Wagner's ring cycle, which she achieves in 20 minutes flat. Well, one day, who should turn up but Siegmund? And he falls madly in love with Sieglinda, regardless of the fact that she's married to Hunding, which is immoral, and she's his own sister, which is illegal. (laughs) But that's the beauty of grand opera. You can do anything so long as you sing it. And I think she, in my heart, paved my way for the day where I went to the cinema to see The Secret Policeman's Other Ball, I think it was. Oh, yeah. And that was all about the blokes. It was yeah. all about Monty Python and this and that and the other. And then onto the stage walked this woman, not girly, in a suit, sat down at the piano and sang. I've had it up to here with men. Perhaps I should phrase that again. Been wearing pretty dresses, floral, taking contraceptives, oral, since I don't remember when I've had it up to here with blood. And I fell in love with Victoria <laughs> Wood and I mourn her early passing yes. still. Yes, that, yeah. that, that was a just a tragic loss, it I was. think. For it everybody. was. And the gift that she gave yeah. to the comedy community and Yep. to um, not just people that, that want to be comedians, but those of us that just want to live a pretty good life with yep. a good humour. A, a very, very fine writer and comedian and uh, greatly missed. Greatly missed and referenced by Flo and Joe. Yeah. Fuck it up again. You took David Bowie, Alan Rickman, Prince and Sharon Jones, Terry Wogan, Ronnie Corbett, Caroline Hearn and Leonard Cohen. Victoria Wood was enough for us, but still you wanted more. Muhammad Ali, Gene Wilder and the great British Bake was the final straw. You shot down a gorilla, we can't cure the Zika virus. And a woman still to blame when men force their way inside us. Rob Turner's not a rapist, cause just look how fast he swims. That's... From Flo and Joan's 2016 song. And if you're wondering what they're making of 2020, have a look at YouTube. And I believe something happened in Bendigo. Oh, in Bendigo. Um, there was... Um, I th- she got stranded for some reason. And my family network was part of the arts community there. And we got hauled in to entertain her. Now, my father got the call and decided that the thing to do was stock up on whiskey and <laughs> very take, wise and take her outside. <laughs> so we um oh we did joy flights around Bendigo. I got to go up in a joy flight. Oh that's um, kinda cool. And we did what anyone that has ever lived in Bendigo, as I did for a bit as a child knows, where you go for a picnic, you go to Lake Eberlock. Of course. Yeah. So out we went to Lake Eberlock with the Esky. I was, you know, I was, 
I'm speechless. That's how much I was. And Lord knows you're never speechless. Uh, apparently I am when I when I think <laughs> back to being that that child of about ten, getting to spend time with this woman who on the stage was a woman and hilarious and risque and clever and talented and funny and internationally successful. Oh yeah, she was a, she was a big star. She was a big star. And there she was having a picnic with me and I had a skipping rope and um, I'm of a certain age to have in the 70s had a skipping rope that was like a hollow tube. Yep, I remember them. Yep, they're good. They swung. Yeah, yeah. They, they, them. Um, well, Anna Russell looked at me and said, I think we should have a competition. I'm not going to try and imitate her. Um, she said, I wonder which of us can blow harder um, and suggested that she blow into one end of the tube and I blow into the other. And the rest of the people there behaved like when someone says, I wonder what will happen if we put this uh, this, this very large packet of penny bungers in the fire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they all went in search of a bunker. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that my 10-year-old lungs are better than this old woman who, you know, with a diaphragm like um, a big thing that's like a diaphragm. I can't think of a really funny metaphor at the moment. Uh, but she, her, her, her lungs would have been the size of bagpipes. I mean, yeah, look, she was like, a, and she used to do a bagpipes gig. Yeah. She had she had this bagpipe set. I would like to give you one of my music appreciation talks out of the series Wind Instruments I Have Known. Today we shall discuss this one. I used to ask the audience to guess what. But I don't anymore because some of the guesses. What she is holding up resembles nothing more nor less than a large deflated scrotum. No, I'm, I'm not surprised you don't recognise it because this is an undressed bagpipe. <laughs> this part never appears in public unless fully Clothes. Yeah, she had bagpipe lungs, yep. and but they were they were like they were uh, hydraulically operated. She had a di- and she was a professional singer. And I thought, no, nah, I, I can outpuff this woman. Well, you were ten. I was ten. Yeah, yep. and uh, I didn't. No, um, I, <laughs> so, so I can just imagine she's she's huffed and puffed in the one end. Her, we've gone ready, set, go, go. blow into oh. either end of this tube. <laughs> And so you've got about thirty liters of whiskey laden breath yep. forced down your down into your lungs. Yes, and I've kind of flown through the air yeah. backwards. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But I remember two things. I remember just how she threw her head back and roared with just the genuine joy of the moment. She was great yeah. fun to be around as a child. Yeah. Um, and my mother just saying quite calmly, well, I expect alcohol can be absorbed through the lungs. <laughs> <laughs> so it was sort of your first drink in oh, a way. Yeah, yeah, my first, <laughs> first shot of whiskey. Um, but I, I've always wondered, you know, I breathed the breath of Anna Russell. Mm-hmm. 
how could I not be a bit of a fangirl? Oh, look. Of a woman yes. with a piano <laughs> and a wit and a subversive mindset. You can do anything so long as you sing it. You can be cockroaches, podcasted cockroaches, giving us feedback and ideas for interviews, radioactive cockroach on Facebook, judycockroach at gmail.com. Upload an audio or ask for a chat. We record on the phone. Please share us with your friends or click on subscribe to hear us again. This chopsticks audio, it's Liberace. He played it at Carnegie Hall in the 70s. If you keep listening, it's quite histrionic, and so we will fade it out now. Find us on Facebook, Radioactive Cockroach, or email judycockroach at gmail.com. It's all in the info on the podcast feed. Okay, Cockroaches, today's soothing and amusing poem of the week involving the ocean is by Rosemary Sisson Wade. She's an Australian poet and and this one was first published in 1974 and it's called The Day We Lost the Volkswagen. During a momentary lull in her head, the poor old thing lost her grip. The boat she was towing towed her instead, ponderously down the slip, backwards into the water. For a swirling moment she almost floated. She thought of setting sail. But her bum tilted, her her breeches bloated, she was heavy in the tail, and the sly seaweed caught her. I thought even then she might make a try. She seemed to be righting her flank but she spun gravely one eye on the sky gave a dignified splutter and sank the sea frothed briefly I don't know she wasn't the kind to drift much less come apart at the seams but the sails and the clouds that day had a lift And perhaps she had some dreams. It was a damn nuisance, chiefly. Thanks for listening. Now, any time you feel in need of support, a good chat or information, we encourage you simply to call 1-800-RESPECT And you can also go to our Facebook page and click on the link there. There's a whole range of supportive options. And there's also a lot of other stuff about us and our guests. Cheers! Radioactive. Cockroach.